be standing for the reading of Scripture this morning as we come to the final uh, part of our survey of uh, the book of Romans, Natural Law Theology Falls Short of the Gospel of Grace. And this morning, chapters 4 through 6, we'll begin by reading in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I'll ask you to be seated this morning, and we're going to continue reading over to chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, each chapter giving us an introduction to the survey this morning of chapters 4 through 6. So we continue reading to hear the word of God, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And now chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were baptized, I'm sorry, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. As I said, a reading from these uh, three chapters, uh, an introduction to the Apostle Paul's continued argument and writing for us as we come to it here in chapters 4 through 6 this morning. So the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Christians of the visible church in Rome is celebrated and disputed over concerning defining Christian doctrines. I'm sure you know that, and I'm sure you know that uh, the epistle to the Romans is one of the most uh, referenced and argued about. Um, But one thing I think we also need to recognize is that the epistle to the Romans should be uh, recognized as a synopsis of covenantal theology. Uh, often you may hear people saying, what is covenantal theology? What, what does that mean? How do we know what that is? Well, I want you to understand that the epistle to the Romans is indeed a synopsis of covenantal theology. Consider this, this is as the Apostle Paul lays it out for us, the, work, the covenant of works continues as universally binding condemnation on all humanity as the basis for the creation mandate enumerated by the moral law of God, witnessed by conscience and scripture revelation for accountability to the triune creator God's holiness, standard of all that is righteous throughout the whole hierarchy of creation, and the ultimate fulfillment by the holiness, justice, and goodness of Jesus Christ for God's plan of salvation by the covenant of grace. And that... That summary, the statement, deserves much consideration in reading through and um, seeing how the Apostle Paul elaborates and uh, um, applies that for our understanding. So I want you to consider this. 
The preaching of the New Covenant Christian gospel, along with Scripture reasons, proofs, and evidences, demonstrated by Trinitarian Christian baptism and the scriptural witness of the Lord's Supper, are the primary means of obeying Jesus' great commission. That's what Paul says he's doing in the introduction in in verses 1 through 6. If you were to go back and read Paul's salutation introduction to this epistle, you would be amazed at how he packs everything he's going to unpack into that introduction and how he tells us this is what I'm going to be explaining to you, uh, that very gospel which I preach. So we come this morning to part four of the survey of uh, the epistle to the Romans. Uh, As I said this morning, the survey is chapters 4 through 6, and we'll talk about why this is out of sequence with the uh, development of the the book by chapters. So here in part 4, the Apostle Paul gives a reasoned theological argument that is extended and detailed based on comparisons and contrasts that lead to mutually exclusive theological conclusions confirming that natural law theologies inherent bias for a conditioned human ability for works righteousness is in contradiction to the new covenant gospel's fulfillment of the covenant of grace. And therefore, natural law theology and its bias toward some human ability or enabling for works righteousness even added to the works of Jesus. Therefore, It's mutually exclusive to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Look at chapter 4 and verse 4. Paul writes, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So pick up on that. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt. As I said, it's going to be a detailed and extended argument. Look at chapter 6. Just turn over uh, to chapter 6 and verse uh, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So between those two verses, Paul elaborates for us what he means by justification by faith alone. So here we come in chapters 4 through 6 that are intentionally presented out of chapter sequence because chapters 4 through 6 seem to get overshadowed by the heaviness of chapters 1 through 3. We started out, we did the, the survey of chapters 1 through 3. We're so familiar with chapters 1 through 3. doesn't mean we can't still learn a lot from it. But generally, if I ask you about the book of Romans, uh, you would have a sense of starting out with chapters 1 through 3 and universal guilt. And everybody's guilty. There's none righteous, no, not one. You could quote verses from chapters 1 through 3. And if I were to ask you, uh, what is one of the puzzling uh, passages and, and one of the puzzling uh, matters of the Christian life, and you'd probably say to me, well, it's about the uh, ongoing sin. How do we deal with ongoing sin? And, and I don't want to do things, and I do them, and I seek God's forgiveness. And, but Romans chapter 7. <laughs> so chapters 4 through 6 seem to get overshadowed by the heaviness of chapters 1 through 3 and then jumped over by the back and forth tensions of chapter 7 that we know about. And of course, we rejoice that we're not left in chapter 7. We all know the opening of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we go on through chapter 8 to the glorious uh, resolution that comes to us 
That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we should celebrate those chapters. They're, they're wonderful. And you, even uh, other chapters. We know about uh, um, chapter nine in term, I mean, chapter 13 in terms of uh, the civil magistrate. And uh, we know about um, chapter 12, about living sacrifices. I mean, there's so much we know about the epistle to the Romans. But I'm not sure that we have put it all together at, at times and appreciated particularly chapters 4 through 6. And in chapters 4 through 6, I want us to pay attention to Paul's argument that natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace because of original sin and actual sins. No one is able or enabled with a righteous desire for God's moral law apart from the supernatural living unity with Christ. Would you, would you consider that again? This is why I'm saying natural law theology falls short of the, of the grace of God because of original and actual sins. What, what the sin condition really is because of original and actual sins. No one is able or enabled with a righteous desire for God's moral law apart from a supernatural living unity with Christ. Now, how this living unity with Christ is affected and the nature of its permanence is really the key that doctrine is disputed over. And uh, I struggle with this in, in bringing us to conclusion in that chapters 4 through 6, it's very difficult to, to really isolate or to focus on key verses. That's what I did in the previous uh, parts of the survey. There were key verses that I could use that were so concise, and then there was explanation, illustration between those key verses. But when we come to chapters 4 through 6, that's difficult to do because it's so tightly reasoned and written. Um, I want you to note the use of Old Testament scripture references applied to the theological argument for authoritative Christian doctrine. Uh, as Paul gives it, look, for example, here, chapter 4. Now, it was not written for his sake, that is, for Abraham's sake alone, that it, that is, righteousness was imputed to him, but also for us. It was written for us. Paul says this back in the opening of chapter 1, too, by the witness of the Holy Scriptures from the prophets. And he uses that Scripture. He uses Old Testament Scripture in validating his argument and, and giving exposition from God's Word. And so uh, it was written also for us that righteousness was imputed to Abraham without works. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And Paul's argument is that was true for Abraham as well. That's how Abraham was justified in promise of the son of promise of God's covenant. And that wasn't Isaac. Isaac was a type. Jesus is the fulfillment, the Lamb of God. So Old Testament archetypes are also named for examples. And again, from uh, Paul's writing here in chapter 5, moreover, the law entered. Here he says that uh, the law entered witnessing to spiritual death by physical death from Adam to Moses. Here is the evidence that the law was operative. The moral law of God, the universal application of the moral law of God, is because from Adam to Moses, people died. And there is no... Uh, um, accountability and guilt where the law is not imputed. But their guilt was imputed to them in terms of their accountability to God, and people died. You want to talk to someone about denying original sin and real sin and that there's accountability? Then tell them, okay, 
have power over death. The mortality that we face and the reality of death is undeniable. People try to disguise and, and uh, remove themselves from it. They lie to themselves. They deceive themselves about it. But from Adam to Moses and from there on, physical death is a testimony and witness to spiritual death of original sin. So, from Adam to Moses, that the offense might abound, and where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why we champion the resurrection, that Jesus has power over death. And that's the argument that the Apostle Paul in Scripture makes for us over and over and over again, not just in the death of Christ, but in his resurrection. As a matter of fact, Paul says we're justified in the resurrection of Christ. And so he brings forward these archetype believers uh, by examples to us this morning, uh, Abraham, David, Moses, and, and Adam, and he compares and contrasts that with Jesus Christ. It's also interesting to note how the Apostle Paul uses power words. One of the power words he uses is really, I've already shown you some examples, but this morning also he talks about uh, reign. What, what is a, the reign of a king? The rule, the power that a king has. And that's kind of foreign to us. We're not quite as uh, familiar with that. But the idea of that there is authority, that there is a hierarchy of authority and power. And so Paul talks about reign it's the Greek word for which kingdom or king is based, basileia. And it seems to be in its etymology, the basis coming through Dutch for boss or for boss. Who is the boss of you? And so it's true. Who is bossing us? Are we under the authority and the boss of sin? Are we under the authority and the boss of Jesus? That's what it means when we say Jesus is king and Lord. He is the boss of us. If we are his true believers and subjects, his slaves. Find that offensive? The world finds that offensive. The Apostle Paul turns it in a magnificent way um, that we'll see. So, uh, theological words and phrases are introduced here in chapters 4 through 6, explaining and clarifying the accomplishment and the application of the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ for justification by faith apart from works. Here are some of the wonderful Theological words that the Apostle Paul introduces in, in these chapters. Impute. The word impute, account, or counted is the same Greek word. Impute, account, counted. What's really interesting is that here Paul begins to take up his argument about the doctrine of grace. He's talked about the grace of God in the introduction in chapter 1. And then he mentions that what's coming, he's going to dis discuss in chapters 3, verse 14, that the, his discussion of the, uh, God's grace is going to come. And in chapter 4 through 6, he begins to really unpack that. He also uses the term heirs, sign and seal of the righteousness by faith, covenantal promise, assured perseverance in saving faith. That's what perseverance and hope have, that connection reconcile reconciliation as a matter of fact the apostle paul uses the term reconciliation we shouldn't overlook this just like he uses the term to be defined and understood definitely as the gospel with the definite article the gospel of jesus christ he talks about the justification that we have apart from works through jesus christ he also speaks of the reconciliation it's a developed doctrine it's an established doctrine it's a defining doctrine of our christian faith the reconciliation by which we have peace with God. And yet we kind of jump over that when we talk about justification and sanctification and, and glorification. 
But Paul sets it before us as a defined and identifiable and essential doctrine of our faith. The justification by which we have peace with God. He uses the term type in these passages as well as free gift and baptized. Wonderful, wonderful, powerful theological words and phrases the Apostle Paul brings to us in chapters 4 through 6. Now as I mentioned to you in the previous parts of this survey in parts 1 through 3, key verses were referenced um, offering support of the concise uh, expositional doctrinal statements. And I gave you those notes, and, and like I said, I hope that you would find them useful. I, somewhere along the line, I began to start calling the sermon notes uh, to-go bag, or to-go box. I was hoping you would take them with you. And, and I want to say that this morning, particularly because of chapters 4 through 6. I'm not going to be able to give exposition more, more fully like I really want to, I'm giving you survey. But what I'm hoping is that you'll take these notes and go back. Even this afternoon, what would prohibit you from taking these notes? I've marked it out, chapters 4, 5, and 6, and and read and say, oh, there's the connection. Here's what is being dealt with in terms of the gospel of grace and our salvation of of being justified by faith apart from works and how that doesn't lead us to uh, a lawless antinomian sin that we don't care, we can just do as we please. No, what is there connected with that? But the living union that we have with Christ and how the Apostle Paul brings all that together. And so I do wish that you would take the to-go box this morning and that you would nibble on it this afternoon reading chapters 4 through 6 along with the comparison of the study notes Because chapters 4 through 6 in the developed argument that the Apostle gives us is so tightly written in details that I'm going to reference to you this morning key ideas. I just couldn't really find key verses like in the other passages because it's so tightly woven together as the Apostle Paul uh, writes. And he begins, and again, I'm not making this absolute, I'm just giving you this as a a perspective, is that in chapters 4 and 5 there are comparisons and contrasts that he makes. And then he moves on in chapter 6 to mutually exclusive theological propositions, drawing it to conclusion. And so I hope you'll follow along this morning with that. And as I said, my my hope and prayer is that you would go back and read the Scriptures. For example, we start in chapter 4. And you see where the Apostle Paul says, "Uh, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? And so we immediately start with comparisons and contrast here in chapter 4 of human flesh, Abraham in the flesh, compared in contrast to divine promise. And of course Paul is developing this idea that out of Abraham's human flesh, what ability or what works did he have? And that is contrasted by God's divine promise and what God is able to do. And then we have him going on with, Bloodline law descendants. Paul develops this argument says, not just Abraham, but those who are from the bloodline who are law descendants of Abraham, compared and contrasted with many people. And he quotes the scriptures here. I will make you the father of many Gentiles. Because it's the same word in Greek. Ethnos. Ethnon. Many peoples. The very same word that elsewhere is translated peoples or nations or Gentiles. Same word. And I know that we're not dealing with just a a wooden, forced kind of uh, sameness in every word, but that's what is being mentioned here. That's the argument that the Apostle Paul is making. He's saying, you don't understand the Scriptures because God made a promise to Abraham. His divine promise is that you'll be the father of many, not just law descendants and blood descendants, 
but of covenant, promised descendants, because of the one son of promise that Isaac was a type of, but Jesus is the reality. And then he goes on to develop the idea of inheritance and debt, compared and contrasted with debt. Inheritance is gift. Debt is something that is owed or obligated or worked for. So he develops that idea. Works for self-justification are not of grace. Compared and contrasted with saving faith for imputed righteousness that is not of human works. He goes on with the external covenantal signs and seals. He says that Abraham received the sign and seal of righteousness by faith before the promise of God came. And the reality of God's promise was before the external fulfillment even of the sign and seal of circumcision. So he says external covenantal signs and seals, whether it be circumcision or later on baptism, are not effectual to produce faith. It's an important argument that he's making here. It's an important argument that we need to hold on to because it's still being disputed today that the external application of covenantal signs can produce faith. They cannot. But saving faith witnesses to the internal regeneration from the seed of God's promise by the covenant of grace. That brings us then into chapter 5. Saving graces by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice they were enumerated here? We used them this morning in our worship. Uh, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into His grace, uh, this grace in which we stand. The saving graces by which we rejoice in the glory of God because we have a standing. And not only that, he goes on to elaborate... Not only that, but we also glory in tribulation or troubles. That we have the glory of God that carries us through troubles. Elder Mays prayed this morning, morning, interceding for us, leading us before the throne of grace. As we said from Hebrews chapter 4, is an act of public worship first, before we just individualize it as our individual piety and prayers. We were led before the throne of grace by God's appointed means and elder in the public worship of God, praying for those who are in trouble. Are you having troubling times, difficulties of all manner to live in this fallen world? We will have troubles and, and, and uh, tribulations and difficulties and hurts and many challenges of all kind. And Paul is writing saying that by the saving graces of the Holy Spirit of God through regeneration that comes based on Jesus justifying uh, fulfillment of the covenant of grace. That we have a standing with God in which we have glory. And that glory perseveres in hope. We glory in tribulations. The world doesn't get that. I'll be honest with you, I don't get it. And and there's an argument in my own mind over this. And it's an argument about unbelief. Am I believing God? Oh, the testimony of Job. I will trust him though though he slay me. I think that's what Paul also writes about in putting to death the deeds of the body. Putting to death our unbelief. Mortifying sin. And so that's what he says here. We glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces. It brings about perseverance. Perseverance in saving faith. It's God's grace that does that. Not our ability, but the power of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us through the resurrection power of Jesus. Paul's going to elaborate and develop that. 
So these are the saving graces that out are working out our justification to perseverance, character, good character, uh, character that holds on to, character that is marked by, that is formed by. That's what the word character means. It's like stamping an image. If you were to take a coin and see what Jesus said, whose image and superscription is there, it's been stamped. That's what the word character means, to be stamped with, to have those defining lines. We've been stamped with the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul's going to elaborate on that a little bit. And that's why we, this character produces hope. And this hope, I noticed in one of the hymns we sang, I wanted to, to point it out, this hope is not some kind of wishful thinking. This hope is a steadfast, grounded assurance. It's not a presumption, but it's the witness of the Holy Spirit that overcomes our doubts. When I said I struggle with that in my faith, the Holy Spirit witnesses to me to overcome that doubt. Believe the Word of God. This is one of the passages that's very useful to me. I mean, even in the world, and even sadly in shallow evangelical Christianity, people say if anything difficult happens to you, if you come upon hard times, if you fall into sickness or in any other kinds of difficulties, oh, you must be out of sorts with God. You must be out of God's favor. No, everywhere in Scripture we're told that God proves our faith, that He brings us through these tribulations and these difficulties and these hurts and these sorrows and these uncertainties of life, but heaven is not uncertain. And the witness of the Holy Spirit is that we are not uncertain. We have hope, a hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so um, saving graces by the gift of the Holy Spirit are compared and contrasted with total human inability by the sin nature. You want to see a, a stark contrast there? The saving graces of the gift of the Holy Spirit in contrast to total human inability by sin nature. And then in chapter 5, Paul goes on and he picks up the theme of enemies of God. Enemies of God by the sin nature. Not only is there a total inability by sin nature, there is a positive uh, uh, conflict. Those who are in their sin nature are enemies of God. And that is... Contrasted with what? Reconciliation. Those who are reconciled to God for salvation by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Remember I mentioned to you earlier that Paul uses the definite article with reconciliation. We have received the reconciliation. And so it's powerful in following the development of his argument. He goes on then in chapter 5 to bring forward before us that Adam representing law condemnation by the covenant of works. Here's why we are uh, sinners by original sin and by actual sin. It's why the doctrine of original sin is so disputed because of its, its conclusion that Adam representing law condemnation by the covenant of works. That's contrasted with Jesus Christ representing gift justification by the covenant of grace. And Paul elaborates and brings that forward uh, as, again, an Old Testament historical uh, reference and doctrine. And then, uh, coming to the conclusion of chapter 5, physical and spiritual death condition. See, original sin, enemies of God, Adam as a representative of the covenant of works and, con and law condemnation. What does that leave us with? Physical and spiritual death is our condition 
of condemnation from original sin. That's true of everyone. Paul is elaborating, bringing forward the argument in chapter 3 that everyone is guilty. So what is that condition? It's a condition of condemnation from original sin. And it manifests itself in spiritual death that can't be disputed because of physical death. And this is compared and contrasted with salvation life by free gift grace for righteousness. By faith justification to eternal life. Oh, I I encourage you, follow the argument. Follow what the Apostle Paul says. Stay with him and, and see how he connects all this together, woven together to give us that beautiful tapestry of God's glorious salvation. That brings us to chapter 6. And here, drawing conclusions from mutually exclusive theological propositions. Now, this is where the authority of God really bears down. And a lot of people don't like this. I'm sad, even theologians and and even commentators and, and ministers who preach and teach don't want to be hemmed in by the mutually exclusive theological propositions. There's an attempt to um, undermine or to reject or to uh, dispute over uh, propositional truth. Well, Scripture is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. And Scripture is knowable. And here in chapter 6, Paul begins with these mutually exclusive theological propositions that those continuing to live in sin are spiritually dead. I don't care if they say they're followers of Jesus. If they continually live in sin and deny the things of Christ and of the Word of God, then they are dead. This is mutually exclusive to living by grace in newness of life as spiritually alive. So Paul is going to further elaborate this. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? What does it mean to be spiritually alive? And where does he go in chapter 6? To baptism. You need to really pay attention to this. Baptism. He's already mentioned earlier that the signs and seals of the covenant of grace cannot produce faith outwardly. Okay? So, now picking up with baptism. Baptism as an outward condition of human works cannot confer grace on infants, children, or adults. Baptism as an outward condition of human works, administering baptism outwardly, cannot confer grace to infants, children, or adults. Remember, the key note there, the key point there is outwardly, by water. But what's the exclusive, mutually exclusive theological proposition? To baptism as sign and seal of the covenant of grace for the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ, as a picture and promise of the necessary inward work of the Holy Spirit given to whom God wills, infants, children, or adults. That's why the Westminster Confession of Faith has a very beautiful statement to whom that grace belongs. Do I know to whom that grace belongs? Do you know to whom that grace belongs? I accept the promise of God. I'll tell you what what my hope is. Every covenant child I baptize, I hope that grace belongs to them. It's not for me to give it. It's for me to obey. It's for me to give the picture and the promise in the sign of baptism. But it is of God to give the inward grace. But why would I be doubting? 
I know there's a tension there. Everyone who receives external baptism is not, does not receive that grace. It doesn't belong to them in terms of the will and the call of God because I know there's a secret elect. And I know that there is uh, not a uh, 100% you know, uh, agreement between the visible church and the invisible church. We know that. I mean, Scripture tells us that. But it doesn't stop me from administering in hope the sign of the covenant of the gospel of grace. And so that's really important. (laughs) Ask yourself, why would Paul bring forth baptism? This is in this reference right here. This is in a short few verses. I think it's pretty huge. And I think it is a mutually exclusive theological proposition that he is built up to that represents his whole argument about external works versus internal regeneration. So the spiritually dead, old sin self cannot be in union with Christ. See, again, a mutually exclusive theological proposition. The spiritually dead, old self cannot be in union with Christ. You probably don't know, but over the doctrinal disputes of generations, that one statement right there is a huge uh, watershed line. The spiritually dead old self, sin self, cannot be in union with Christ. That's mutually exclusive to the reality of baptism as a spiritually affected covenantal union with Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection. Not the external application of baptism, but what the picture and the promise of true baptism is, that is being born again. Regeneration. So covenantal union with Christ, affected by true baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, of which outward baptism is a picture and a promise. And so this affected living union with Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection for a spiritually alive, new Christian self. Follow the Apostle Paul's argument here. Follow his, I told you, take this and compare. Read chapter 6, read these verses that talk about the old sin self and the spiritually alive new Christian self. I'm not making it up. (laughs) I'll, I'll see if you take me up on that challenge. I'm not making it up. He goes on in chapter 6. This is important because we struggle with this in every generation. What's called legalism, self-righteousness, Phariseeism, uh, philosophical dualism. You've heard me talk about some of those things in the past. Well, what does Paul say here? Theological legalism of man-made rules for works righteousness for salvation is in itself lawless. It's antinomian. It's rejecting God's law. It's saying, well, by the covenant of, of, of works... We'll save ourselves. This leads to religious Phariseeism, self-righteousness, self-works. Remember Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees? If you don't believe Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees was really intense, read Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! And it also leads to a philosophical dualism. Paul's talking about here. We can just sin in our body all we want because our souls have been saved. Paul says that's a carryover of... Platonic dualism has no place in Christian doctrine or life. And so, no, we don't live in that antinomian way. 
We are not lawless, but we have a changed relationship to the law through Jesus Christ. He argued that earlier. So, theological legalism, lawlessness that Paul is writing about, of man-made rules of works righteousness for salvation, this antinomianism, this lawlessness, leads to religious Phariseeism and to philosophical dualism. It's mutually exclusive to the covenant of grace, means of justification by faith alone. And what is this justification by faith alone? What does it do? It affects sanctification to eternal life. That word holiness you'll see translated in chapter 6, same word for sanctification. That's what the doctrine of sanctification is rooted in, holiness unto eternal life. We're separated unto God. The power of the work of God's grace in us through Christ and His fulfillment and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection power of Jesus more and more overcomes the struggle, the temptation, and the uh, entanglement that we have in sin. As I told you before, that to me is one of the most challenging doctrines of our Christian faith is how we continue to contend with remaining corruption but we're not the same old sin self that we were. We are a new Christian self in Christ. Even if the sins look the same sometime, scriptures elaborate for us the difference. So the spiritually dead old self enslaved to the body of sin is mutually exclusive to the spiritually alive new self enslaved to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That brings us to the conclusion of chapter 6 where Paul says, I'm going to use human terms here you know, for you to, to get a grasp on this. I'm going to bring this down. I'm going to condescend and use some human terms here. Enslavement. Now I think it's interesting because that's an offensive. <laughs> it's offensive to our pride. It's offensive to us in just about every way. And Paul brings it forward in terms of whether we're enslaved to sin and the old self or whether we're enslaved to Christ and the new self. And I don't think we can miss the point that he makes. The inevitable conclusion applies to the key theological question about living union with Christ in terms of controlling power. And Paul uses the term enslavement about controlling power. So that sinful enslavement ends in eternal death, but freedom from sinful enslavement to become slaves of righteousness for holiness ends in eternal life. How huge is that? <laughs> you know, Paul dealing with the question of how we are livingly united to Jesus Christ and how permanent is that? And where does he come in chapter 5 by conclusion? And that is, what is the controlling power then under which we live? Enslavement to sinful uh, power ends in eternal death. But freedom from sinful enslavement to become slaves of righteousness for holiness ends in eternal life. And so I can legitimately ask you this morning, whose slave are you? What power controls you? Who is your real self? Do you have a living Identity unified with Christ. And if you do, you know. So the summary, mutually exclusive theological proposition 
captures the Apostle Paul's argument from chapters 4 through 6, as I pointed out to you, starting out with wages and gift. Where does Paul conclude in chapter 6 and verse 23? For the wages, what is owed, what is by debt, is not of grace, is not of gift, is not of faith. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift, what is freely given of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I hope that you will spend time following through and letting the development of the Apostle Paul's tight, reasoned, and detailed argument here with the introduction of these wonderful theological phrases that we hold on to and his examples from Old Testament Scripture and believers, uh, even dealing with Adam. I hope you'll follow that through and that you will receive the blessing that it was written for us who believe, that it might build our faith and encourage us that we have the hope that endures, the hope unto eternal life, because we are livingly united through Christ, and that our baptism is more than an outward sign, because the grace of God has been poured out into our hearts. I also hope that you will rejoice in this Lord's Supper this morning in connection with what we have just been preaching